Good morning, everybody. Lovely to see you all. And I send you greetings from Norfolk, which is about 100 miles away from where you are today. And I hope you're all well and you're managing to cope again with this second phase of lockdown. But at least one thing is good. All the children and students are back in their respective schools. I'd like to draw your attention this morning to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 that was read to us and particularly verses 2 and verse 3 where the Apostle Paul says we give thanks to God always for you all making mention of you in our prayers remembering without ceasing your work of faith labor of love patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father. And I've called this talk or message this morning, Basic Ingredients. And I hope that when you next do some cooking, you might remember this particular message. And I hope by the time we finish our time together, you will understand what the title really means. Now thinking about this great access we have to each other across the internet, I was only thinking about John Wesley, that when he often said, the world is my parish, in today's terms, it would mean that he could speak anywhere in the world from his horse somewhere in Britain. So he didn't have to travel as he did. And this is the wonder of modern technology that we're able to do this kind of thing. So talking about time and talking about the amount of work that we seek to do for the Lord and so on, a lot can happen in a very short time, can't it? And every time we put our clocks forward or back, I've got that custom of always changing my watch first thing on Saturday morning. And in October, when we put our clocks back, I went out into the garden to do a few hours doing different jobs. And at the end of what I was planning to do, I came back in and I looked at my watch and thought, my, I've done so much in such a little space of time and of course I realized when I looked at the clock on the wall that I'd put my watch back so what seemed to be a very short period of time was the normal time as it was for that particular day. Now in Thessalonica the Apostle Paul spent three Sabbath days reasoning and preaching and talking in the synagogue where the Jews that were living in that great commercial city were living and also Greeks who had become, they had accepted the Jewish faith and they would be there too. And Paul was preaching to these people, showing them that Jesus was their Messiah that was promised in the Old Testament. And the result of this 
was that after three weeks, and obviously he worked in the week talking to people and moving around different parts of the city, no doubt, that at the end of three weeks, he had to leave very quickly because of the persecution that was around at that time, which often followed him on his travels, that he had left a very vibrant church. Even after only three weeks' work, it seemed as if the Lord had done a wonderful work in that city and in these people's lives. And these people possessed a clear evidence of their new birth, of being born again. And their testimony was such that it has spread right through Macedonia and Achaia. They were the two Roman provinces of what we call Greece today. And they had this quite amazing testimony of what the Lord had done amongst them. And if you remember the, the background to this visit to Thessalonica, you remember that Paul was on his second missionary journey and he had gone to Troas, that area around there, and he wanted to go in a certain direction and it seemed as if the door was shut and he obviously prayed about it and he was concerned, where should we go next to proclaim the gospel? Should we try somewhere else? They didn't know. And then at that night, in that night time, he received the vision from the man of Macedonia, come over, come over and help us. And so they landed in Philippi and they had ministry amongst those women by the riverside. Lydia was converted, the fortune teller, the, the girl that worked for the fortune teller was converted to the jailer in the prison. They also spent time in prison and there was that incredible earthquake that they were able to come out and testify to the jailer. He too was converted with members of his family. So wonderful things were happening at the same time that there was persecution following them all the time. And so from Philippi, they went to Thessalonica. And as I say, they spent these three weeks working in that city. So many of the Jews and Greeks were converted. But again, they had lots of persecution. Even their own countrymen were persecuting, particularly the Greeks who had become Christians. And so Paul had to leave there very quickly and he came down to Berea and then he made his way down to, to Athens and finally spent some time in Corinth. Now Silas was with him and also Timothy and they had stayed behind either in Thessalonica or had gone back to Philippi. We don't quite know. The books can say different things on this. But at least at Corinth, they had rejoined the apostle. And he wanted to know how that young church in Thessalonica was getting on. He wanted to know how they were coping 
in their time of persecution, particularly as they were very young Christians. And so the apostles sent back Timothy to Thessalonica to find out. And so Timothy comes back, he comes back, and he comes back with a very glowing report of this young church that we find in 1 and 2 Thessalonians. And probably there's only about a six-month gap between the first letter and the second letter. So in this letter, Paul is writing his first letter to the church to encourage them and to say that he is thankful for what God has done amongst them and to pray for them as they face these difficult times. And of course, to encourage them, to encourage them in the Christian faith. Now, when preaching, Paul was an evangelist. He proclaimed the evangel, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But when he writes his letters, he becomes a pastor. He wants to come alongside these people and care for them and provide for them in whatever needs that they have. Now, Paul had a lot of things to be thankful for, for this church. And that is the basis of our text this morning, that Paul is giving thanks for these people. Now, it might be sometimes that when you pray, you find it difficult to know what to pray for. And, you know, in the New Testament, there is always a link between thanksgiving and supplication in prayer praying for the needs of others intercessing for others holding others before the lord and it's always a good thing to begin with thanksgiving because when you're thanking the lord for even the most basic things of life that's why in the lord's prayer you find give us this day our daily bread all our daily needs not only the food on our table, but even the strength to follow the needs of that particular day, our work, our home, and all the other things we're involved in, that we are thankful to God. And often that leads us to pray for particular situations, people, and issues. So it's always a reminder that never separate prayer from thanksgiving and never separate thanksgiving from prayer otherwise prayer becomes a bit of a shopping list isn't it and we're always in danger of doing that so what is it then that paul particularly gives thanks for and that's our interest this morning first of all he says doesn't he he thanks god for the work, their work, produced by faith. He speaks about their labor prompted by love. And he speaks about endurance inspired by hope. And one of the great themes of the letters 
is the theme of the second coming of the Lord Jesus, that when you are in a difficult situation, it's good to realize that there is a better day coming when the Savior will return. Yes, he will come in judgment on those who have not repented, those who have not believed the gospel, but he is coming for his people. Then there will be the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. So that is the hope that enables us to endure because we know that what we're seeing now is only for a season, a short time, going back to our thought about time at the beginning. Now, when you look at these three words, faith, love, and hope, they are often found together in the New Testament. Sometimes they stand alone. We find that in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 13, where faith, hope, and love is listed at the end of that great chapter on love. Sometimes and very often, there is a different descriptive clause with each of the words. And I've given some examples here from one from Galatians 5, verses 5 to 6. But by faith, we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness and then hope for which we hope and then love, faith expressing itself in love. So each of those words has got a definitive clause that brings out the emphasis and the meaning that, in this case, the apostle wants to make. And also you find in Colossians 1, verses 3 to 5, your faith in Christ Jesus, the love you have for all the saints, the faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven. And our own text, your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope. Now you see that the phrases are very different, aren't they? Because in Colossians, your faith is said to be in Christ Jesus. And then in Thessalonians, your work is produced by faith. And the other thing is that often, and we've seen it already, these three words are so linked that they are like three pearls on a stream. Take the one in Colossians. Your faith in Christ Jesus, the love you have for all the saints, yes, but then the under love, the faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven. So Paul is saying faith and love there actually comes out of the hope that is stored up for us in heaven. That there is almost a hope in heaven, apart from the hope we have in looking forward to heaven. Now, when you, again, look at these words, when you look at these words, 
They are in fact a summary of the Christian life. Faith, hope and love. Because really, when you think about it, these Thessalonian believers were a young church, young Christians, beginning to find their way in a pagan society. They had their old lives of paganism and worship in the various Greek temples and all this kind of thing. And suddenly they have experienced God's love and grace through the apostle. The word of God has been preached. They've been convicted, as we read later in this chapter, and they are beginning to grow and know the Lord in their lives day by day. And you can say that faith, love and hope really means that there is nothing we can know as Christians. There is nothing that we can experience. There is no situation that we can relate to. There is no experience that we can live within or around or so on. There is nothing in our lives that is outside of the scope of these words. The whole of our life whether we are in meeting with other believers, whether we are at work, whether we are in our homes, whether we are out relaxing or whatever we're doing, there is nothing, there is nothing that comes outside the scope of faith, love and hope. And there's some scriptures here that really illustrate the point for example, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7, Paul says, we live, we live, that means 24-7 living, we live by faith and not by sight. In other words, we're no longer just living for the things that we can see with the physical eye, but we are living with our faith and trust and hope in the Lord Jesus. We can't see him, but we know he's there and with us in every aspect of life. Habakkuk 2 verse 4, the just shall live by faith. Again, the same emphasis. And then when you look at the word love in John 13 verse 35, we find there that we love him because he first loved us. So when do we love Jesus? Just on a Sunday when we come together? Or do we love him 24-7? Again, he said, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And then the word hope, that these early Christians not only had complete knowledge of the resurrection, they knew that it had happened, that Jesus was alive and so on, that was an important doctrine. But another important doctrine was the return of Jesus. In fact, Paul says, doesn't he, at the end of chapter 1 and verse 9, how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, 
whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So this hope in the coming Lord was a major influence upon their lives. And that's why John says in 1 John 3 verse 3, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Now that refers to our sanctification, our mortification of the flesh and so on, that constant battle that we are engaged in, that we might become more like Jesus and what the Holy Spirit enables us to do. Yes, we fail often, but we keep on, we persevere. And so our hope in Jesus who is to come has effect upon our lives, even at this minute, as we think of our Christian walk with the Lord. So it's a summary. The whole of Christian experience is within the scope of these three wonderful words, faith or trust, love, agape love, and hope. Now, the second thing I want to share with you this morning is this, that faith, love, and hope are not possessed at birth. We're not born with these three ingredients, but they are the first evidences of being born again. Now, in a natural sense, we are born with these ingredients, as I'll show you in a moment. But in a spiritual sense, they are evidences of the new birth having taken place. If someone said to me, am I a Christian? I would say, is there faith? Is there love? Is there hope? Now, what is it that makes a midwife relax when she's delivering or has delivered a baby? When the baby cries, when the baby breathes, and when the baby feeds. So how do you know you're a Christian? There is faith, there is love, and there is hope. Now, in one sense, we do have these abilities when we are born, but they are natural abilities. For example, we all trust. We trust our doctor when we go to them with symptoms of a condition. We, we trust our solicitor when we are buying and selling houses. When you go into a cafe and you sit on a chair, you are trusting that chair to take you. When you take the meal, you're trusting that food has been prepared properly. When you get on a bus, you trust the driver and so on. We use this all the time. Trust, resting in someone else, something else. But the faith that we're talking about here is that wonderful gift of God which we often call saving faith. It's unique. It's a gift of God. It's the ability 
to be able to trust in Christ as your personal Savior and Lord. And you know, you know you've got this faith. You know you've got this faith because you can do nothing without Christ. Christ is everything to you because you know he meets your needs as a sinner. And I don't need to look anywhere else. I don't need to look anywhere else. When Jesus said to those great crowd of disciples, well, you know, go away. And his 12 said to him, well, we can't go away because we know, we know that you have eternal life. They knew that Jesus was their Messiah. And that's true faith. This resting and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can't trust in any other. And you won't look anywhere else. You won't look anywhere else. And so for these Thessalonian believers, this trust in the Lord was actually producing good works. And it was these good works that were being recognized by the other churches within the country. And their works were the fruit of faith. And of course, that's the great theme, isn't it, of the letter of James about faith without works is dead. We're not saved by works. We cannot save ourselves by, by works, by even thinking that if we go to a place of worship or we go and do some good deeds to our neighbor that that will give us brownie points for heaven no way but the glory of the message of the gospel is that god gives us this gift to lay hold upon christ faith is like the knife and fork in a restaurant it enables you to take the meal the faith that god gives enables us to trust and rest in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this faith is to be demonstrated in a new life, including our service and our works. And everything comes out of faith. Everything comes out of faith. I remember a story of a man that went to see a cobbler to have some shoes mended. And he said to this chap who he knew was a believer, he said to him, what do you do for the Lord? And he said, I make shoes. No, he said, what do you do? What's your Christian work? I make shoes. And that man had recognized that this faith produced works that he did as a believer. As a believer. So the question we have to ask ourselves regarding this is this. Am I doing works? because of Christ and my faith in him, are we working wholeheartedly for our employer even? Because we know that we serve a higher master, the Lord himself. Yes, we can love. We have love from, from birth. We, we love people. We love those dearest to us. We love our our wives, our, our husbands, our children, our friends, and so on. But this is agape love. This is something that is unique. It is unique to Christian experience. It reflects the very nature of God, who is love. 
And this agape love is a love that is in action. It's not a, an emotion. It's not something sentimental. It is a love in action for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And this is the love that is in our hearts. It's the fruit of the spirit, that love that enables us to serve God. And for these believers, it was that their work was also labors of love that we serve one another because of love, our self-giving, our action towards others. It's a love that is unique to us as Christians. People can do good things. Unbelievers can do good things. They can go all over the world doing good things. But that's not the same love. That's not the same love that the Holy Spirit places in our hearts through the new birth. And one of the tests of test of this is that we do things not because we have to that's always the cults that's their emphasis you've got to do this false religions you've got to do this but we do it because we want to because of that new life in our hearts and we can also yes we can also have hope but it's more likely to be wishful thinking isn't it you know will that bus turn up at the time on the board? Will there be a seat on the train when I go perhaps into London? Will I get that job? Will I pass my exam? Will my wife or husband like that present I bought them for Christmas? It's, it's often wishful thinking. We're not very certain, are we? We're not very, we're not very kind of able to say, well, yeah, it's definitely gonna happen. It's, it's wishful thinking, it's vagueness. But the hope that the believer has is far different. As Hebrews 11.1 1 speaks about, it's a knowing and it's being certain that it will happen. It will happen. Just as the resurrection happened, just as the death of Jesus happened on the cross, so the Lord is coming again and that's going to happen. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. There's going to be a new creation because that is the hope. That is the hope that we have in our hearts because of the new birth. It's a hope that enables us to see things that we can't see with the physical eye. It's a bit like, it's a bit like this, this virus that people, you know, they are, they're becoming very despondent. I was talking to a nurse the other, the other day and, and she was saying people have lost their confidence. They don't want to go out shopping. They don't want to meet with other people. They are scared of even talking to a friend because of the fear of this virus. And yet the Christian hope is that we know that everything is in God's hands. And that day will come when it will finish that there will be a purpose in it that we may not know now, but one day all will be revealed. And certainly there's been some wonderful opportunities of the gospel being preached through online services and other media and so on. But God is in charge of this. And that's our hope. 
That's our confidence that God is in absolute charge of what's going on. Hope drives us to action, doesn't it? We may be struggling with persecution in, in different ways at, at work with people that kind of say things about us because we say that we're Christians, almost to the point that we, we're silly to believe these things. But it's that hope that drives us and keeps us, enables us to endure, just as these believers were going through that time of persecution and they were enduring. And it was that hope that enabled them, enabled them to keep going. And it also challenges our lives today, doesn't it, hope? Yes, we have hope of a wonderful future, but it's that hope that drives us now to deal with our own sin and temptations and so on. That verse I've already quoted, he that has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. And then the last thought is this, faith, love and hope are to grow and increase. If you go to chapter three, chapter 3 and verse 12. This is part of Paul's prayer. There's a number of prayers that Paul gives for this church. He says in verse 11, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct your, our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you. So he prays that their love may increase. And then when you go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3, we are bound to give thanks always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of every one of you all abounds towards each other so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. Now isn't that wonderful that this church had increased in love, had increased in love and hope and also we can infer their hope as well because they were enduring these persecutions and so on. So faith, love and hope are to endure and increase. So a few thoughts to finish with. Some questions to ask ourselves. Have I got the right ingredients? Have I got the right ingredients? Is there faith that enables me to trust Christ? Do I have a love that is unique for the children of God, for the way that I carry out my business, my home, my work, my Christian service? Have I got that hope that leads me to think of those better days to come? Am I good at Sunday religion? but the week 
is hardly different to non-Christians around us. In other words, does faith, hope, and love have an influence upon our lives wherever we are, whatever we are doing? How do I measure up to the love description of 1 Corinthians chapter 13? Perhaps for homework, you can go and read it quietly sometime today. What drives and motivates me in my Christian service? Is it faith? Is it love? Is it hope? You might be praying for someone to be converted. Well, hope enables you to hold on. Remember George Muller, he prayed for three particular friends and years and years went by and gradually, one by one, they came to know the Saviour, and one of them even after he had died. But there was hope there, there was faith, there was love. Am I a growing Christian? Do I know more of Jesus this year than I did two years ago? Is my trust in him stronger today than what it was two years ago, three years ago? Have I grown since I became a Christian? And the last thought, can we be thankful for each other. Paul was so grateful, so thankful for this church. Can we be thankful for each other because of what the Lord is doing among you? Well, the Lord bless you and keep you and make this day special for you and the coming week, God willing, a week of opportunity and service because of faith, love and